Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter, who's the managing director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. First, though, Tara, welcome. You've been hooked onto the TV spy series that we featured in last week's podcast, Queen Sonal. We had their producers on, didn't we? <laughs> Are you completely hooked? I'm totally hooked. I just can't wait for the second series. They must just hurry up and get over with COVID and get on to producing the next lot. It's brilliant. <laughs> well, I suppose COVID have got a lot of people <laughs> tuning into Netflix and, and hunkering down. Yes. Well, we've got a great podcast ahead, Tara. Our focus is going to be on the current situation in Zimbabwe. Much chatter about President Mnangagwa's political future, fears about a new wave of arbitrary arrest, quashing political dissent. And all at a time when there's much to be mulled over, over the fallout of the closure of the stock exchange and the booting out of the insurance giant Old Mutual, which I know you've been speaking about over the past few podcasts. First, though, Tara, let's take a listen to some of the stories in the news which have dominated since our last podcast. Thousands of people have taken to the streets of the Lebanese capital, Beirut, in anger at the country's leaders after this week's devastating explosion in the port area of the city. The island nation of Mauritius is under a state of emergency as residents try to stop a massive fuel spill from destroying its pristine beaches. The video sharing platform TikTok is threatening legal action against the United States after Donald Trump ordered firms to stop doing business with the Chinese app within 45 days. Let's turn to Hong Kong where police have made 10 arrests under China's new security law. One of them is Agnes Chow, who's a prominent pro-democracy activist. The other is a high-profile media tycoon called Jimmy Lai. Hmm, interesting. So, Tara, what stories have crossed your radar this week? My main story really comes from your neck of the woods, Karen. And ESCOM has issued summonses uh, to reclaim some of the lost earnings from the Gupta brothers, uh, from Brian Malefe, who is the former CEO, and a host of management, including their legal counsel, um, in, I think, the first uh, of its kind, where the Gupta brothers are actually named uh, in, in a summons that is to reclaim some of the lost earnings from the ESCOM, which is the uh, the, the utility uh, provider, the electricity utility. That's right. And the Guptas were the family that have been accused of state capture, of basically running a number of deals. Yes. I mean, they were at the heart of what South Africa calls state capture, which is what in the rest of the world would be called grand corruption. And ESCOM was absolutely at the heart of the, um, of the corruption. One of the things that the um, Gupta brothers were accused of was eff effectively setting up companies uh, to be able to provide uh, energy services and failing to deliver in a nutshell. Let's put it very bluntly and, and fleecing the economy at the same time. Yes. I mean, they took control almost by coercion and force uh, of a coal mining company uh, that was meant to supply ESCOM. Uh, and then just failed to deliver following that. Um, 
and it, the deal was bankrolled by a number of international banks. It's a scandal that is going to run and run. Absolutely, and a real test of the Special Investigation Unit's power, the, the Hawks, which uh, people have got a lot of mixed opinions on here in South Africa, but let's not go there. Uh, you've got a story in Niger. Sadly, we tend to forget just how poor the security situation is around Burkina Faso in Niger and in uh, northeastern Nigeria, where you still have Islamist extremists uh, operating with apparent impunity. And so I think a number of, I think eight people were killed in Niger, um, including French uh, tourists who are actually visiting a, a giraffe centre in Niger. So just a reminder of, of, the, of, de- of poor security conditions in West Africa, in a part of West Africa. Yes, and it's interesting. I mean, the, the groups uh, IS and Al-Qaeda and their affiliates, they're, they're involved in a lot of infighting uh, to remain relevant in that part of the Sahel. Uh, so we've seen a number of attacks, not all of them necessarily make the news, unless they do involve Westerners, unfortunately. Yes, and, you know, it's worthwhile remembering that actually this is a lot of the Sahelian and particularly Malian uh, things uh, came from the invasion or the intervention, the Western intervention in Libya, which uh, unleashed a wave of instability, including a coup in Mali in uh, in 2012 and and allowing for another um, sort of platform for IS and Al-Qaeda affiliates to uh, to set up operations. And I wonder how many people here in South Africa will say, I told you so, because the South African government was very, very resistant to signing any Security Council resolution permitting uh, that intervention in Libya. Yes, um, very much I told you so territory, as is indeed Cote d'Ivoire and Ivoirian elections where we've heard that uh, Alassane Ouattara, the uh, supposedly outgoing president, has just announced that he will actually be standing for elections again. Um, And this comes about because uh, the candidate who was um, due to succeed him has sadly died, um, uh, Amadou Koulibaly. And, And so, you know, there was a question of what would Alassane Ouattara do Um, and whether he would actually then put his hat in the ring or not. And what allows him to do that is a change to the constitution. What a surprise. What a surprise. That old old chestnut, (laughs) yes. I've seen that before. Burundi, yes. (laughs) Yes, uh, quite unusual. Yes, uh, we haven't. Yes, it's kind of um, becoming the norm. So the new constitution in uh, 2016 is considered uh, to be the la loi fundamentale, the sort of a brand new law and so it wipes out the conditions of the previous constitution so it allows uh, Watara to stand again as a brand new candidate as if he hadn't stood before. And just a reminder that Watara came to power after Laurent Gbagbo um, ended up uh, being booted out and ended up before the, the ICC. Of course he's now been acquitted but um, interesting, very interesting. And the same characters are still the same characters that are going to be in the in the next election, although there is room for some surprises, which uh, which we may talk about in a future podcast. Okay, watch this space, Tara. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor.
now, Zimbabwe has been in the forefront of the news with the arrest of prominent journalists, figures from the world of literature and other opposition voices as the government of President Emerson Mnangagwa, the man known as the Crocodile, tries to clamp down on opposition. We've seen the Zimbabwean government use COVID-19 as a pretext for rounding up opponents in brutal fashion. And in business, we've seen the extreme measures being taken by government to limit access to foreign currency. To get an assessment of where Zimbabwe stands at the moment, we're joined on the podcast by Dewa Mavinga, a long-time human rights advocate and a man who I met back in 2008 when journalists and human rights groups were having to operate in the country undercover. Dewa, welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Karen and Tara, for having me on the show. Thank you. There were a lot of focus on Emerson Mnangagwa's recent rather sinister speech, warning that he would flush out bad apples. Um, Some see this as a signal of a major crackdown to come, the likes of which we've seen in the past in Zimbabwe, others as the word of a politician in panic. What do you say? Well, Mnangagwa's uh, words uh, are a little bit of both because uh, this is a a man in panic talking. He is someone who has been um, uh, fighting from within his own uh, ruling party, ZANU-PF, and also the security leadership in the country. Uh, That may not be very much happy with uh, Mnangagwa. But also, uh, we need to take his um, warnings very seriously because this is... uh, the same man uh, back in the 1980s who was at the helm of the security ministry that was responsible for the Gukurawundi massacres. And so... the Matabeliland massacres. Matabeliland massacres. And when he he talks of um, flushing out uh, the bad apples and going after what he termed um, uh, the dark forces or the the terrorists, then it means that uh, there will be most likely an intensification of this crackdown that we have witnessed uh, in recent weeks and months, which has included um, abductions, uh, torture, sexual assault, uh, and arbitrary arrests of um, prominent journalists and activists across Zimbabwe. But the crackdown also seems to be in response to general dissatisfaction from within the own, with his own party. Uh, would you agree there seems to be an outreach recently of, of control by a shadowy um, security uh, apparatus behind operating behind Manangagua? The JOC, I'm thinking of in particular. Can we just explain what the JOC is? The JOC is the... Um... I beg your pardon, the Joint Operation Command. I agree with, with you, Tara, absolutely, that uh, the Joint Operations Command is very much involved in partisan politics in, in, in Zimbabwe. And um, we have seen that since the military coup in November 2017, uh, there has been uh, a lot of focus on whether or not Mnangagwa would be able to deliver on his promises for a new dispensation and an unfolding democracy. Can we just ask you, Dewa, I mean, for many people who are unfamiliar with Zimbabwe, but who have heard over the years uh, stories of, of extreme poverty, of hardship. We now have COVID-19. Can you give us some practical examples of what life is like for people on the ground? COVID-19 has um, made the living conditions of ordinary Zimbabweans much worse, uh, particularly if we know that uh, about 60% of all Zimbabweans uh, are facing starvation. They need food aid. Um, in the uh, 
in the capital city Harare alone, over 2 million people do not have access to safe drinking water. People can no longer afford to have decent, you know, three meals a day. People are now turning to and depending on uh, remittances from friends and relatives outside of the country, in South Africa, in the UK, in Australia and elsewhere. But because, again, of COVID-19 and the lockdown, very few are now able to continue to support family members. The lockdown means that people cannot go out to fend for themselves, to find food, to, to trade, to buy things. Uh, in a country which has about um, uh, 62% being the informal sector economy, uh, which is the second highest in the world. And the government of um, uh, President Mnangagwa has offered a paltry $200 in lo local currency, which is less than uh, $3 US per month to give people as support as a COVID-19 intervention measure. But this is absolutely worthless. It's, it, it cannot help. It cannot make a difference. And that uh, Zimbabwe dollar, of course, as soon as it's uh, printed, is worth less. Because isn't, um, isn't inflation now at around 780% at the moment, Dewa? It is, and uh, this uh, uh, inflation has eroded people's earnings. Uh, government workers, teachers, doctors, nurses cannot even afford to um, pay for sort of transport uh, to go to work for a week. So you'll find that families are living in debt, and families in the cities, in Arare, in, in, in Bulawayo and other cities, are now living a rural life where they have to scrounge for firewood uh, to make a fire behind their houses uh, illegally uh, for them to cook a meal because there is often no electricity, the blackouts uh, up to 18 hours a day. So it's a huge struggle and people are trying to, to adjust, are trying to find ways to make ends meet, uh, but it's, it's um, simply not possible. Uh, the capital city has become uh, like a village in terms of how people are living now. You know, there is no running water in most houses. Um, the uh, affluent uh, have drilled boreholes in their back backyards, but for the majority of the uh, urban poor, they depend on unprotected shallow wells that they have dug uh, behind their properties and the water is not clean, it's not safe. And in this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, that's a huge risk in terms of uh, the waterborne diseases. So what I wanted to ask you, I mean, for people who've watched um, Zimbabwe sort of intermittently with a, a distant interest, but nevertheless with a little bit of knowledge, it seems like it's awfulness upon awfulness upon awfulness. It's so difficult to get a sense of scale because we were having this conversation 10 years ago and you were telling me how bad it was then. Um, what about the remittances that people were relying upon? Are they struggling to actually even access those, being able to get to the bank and being able to access those, that precious foreign currency that were keep, was keeping them going? That's one of the huge challenges in Zimbabwe at the moment, that um, people are so much dependent on remittances from friends and relatives abroad. But it's a challenge even to access 
uh, those remittances. Uh, they are um, uh, always huge queues where people would spend even days without getting uh, the little bit of money that would have come in to support. Sorry to interrupt, but, but when they go to the bank, can they get that cash in US dollars or must it be converted to Zimbabwean currency? They should get uh, the money in US dollars, but often enough, it's not available. There is a huge shortage in foreign currency. So that's one of the problems. Uh, uh, I have um, uh, a relative um, uh, that I sent uh, $20 because he was in crisis and he spent two weeks going every day to uh, this um, uh, trader to try and receive the money. And every day he would say, tell me the same story. Is They have run out of money. There is no money. They have said I must call first before I go in. So it's a huge crisis. And uh, for many people, uh, that is the only way that they can, you know, find a way to survive. Uh, sometimes it is borrowing from friends. Sometimes it is now it's much more common to have uh, these um, crowdfunding initiatives on WhatsApp, on, on, on Facebook, on social media for small things like school fees or like uh, money for, for med- medication, money to go to the clinic, to the hospital. Also hard hit are the pensioners because their money has become uh, equivalent to say, let's say per, per month, maybe less than uh, 10 US dollars, when previously it would have been over um, 300 US dollars. That situation, I mean, coming to Karen's point, you know, this is crisis upon crisis upon crisis that we've seen. And I, as a political analyst, I don't know how many times I've called uh, the, uh, you know, this end game, the crisis in Zimbabwe as leading to regime change. And I've, over the years, had to come to accept that actually change won't happen unless change happens in within ZANU-PF. But isn't it unsustainable this time? The pressure is certainly mounting on ZANU-PF uh, from the population and also from you know Zimbabweans outside of the country uh, who are complaining about uh, the abuses and also the high levels of corruption uh, in the country. Uh, but we also need to know that uh, unlike most countries, in Zimbabwe, uh, the leadership of the security forces, uh, the Joint Operations Command, uh, these are very much involved uh, in partisan politics and in um, controlling uh, the population. This is why there has been this heavy-handed uh, um, clamp down on activists and we are now witnessing uh, how opposition activists and journalists who are exposing corruption are being hunted down uh, by elements within the security forces. Uh, but what is happening is that you know the difficulties in the country affect everyone, including the soldiers and the police. Uh, so when there is no money, it's, it's basically for everyone. With the queues at the banks, it's for everyone. Uh, and also the uh, poor health services in the hospitals, uh, they affect everyone. And in fact, at this point, even the uh, political elites who used to fly out to Dubai, uh, to Singapore for medical treatment, they can no longer do that because of COVID-19. So they are stuck uh, with those poor services in the country. And that is part of what is also driving uh, the pressure and the tensions within ZANU-PF and within the security forces. I've been hearing, though, Dewa, that that there are some military figures, some of the senior generals, exerting pressure on uh, President Mnangagwa because they want to be able to go and tend to their fields, go and tend to their land and to to basically uh, opt out of this. Is he being 
put under pressure to to step down and to give way to someone else and to potentially give way to some kind of transitional authority. President Mnangagwa is uh, certainly under pressure from uh, the security forces and from uh, those uh, his colleagues within ZANU-PF, uh, including uh, his deputy, uh, General Chiwenga. Um, and these tensions go back to the time of the November 2017 coup. Uh, the generals are unhappy, uh, particularly because of the high-level corruption, and they believe that uh, only a few who are connected to President Mnangagwa are benefiting and are looting the resources at the expense of, uh, of uh, everyone. So Mnangagwa is aware uh, that um, uh, his colleagues uh, and those in the army are not happy. Uh, but the challenge seems to be that at this point, uh, it's probably too late for him to turn around the economy because, one, he needs the international community's support. But he has failed to achieve that because of these reckless uh, and rampant abuses that have been going on. And there has been no significant uh, drive to attract investors into, into the country. Uh, attempts to have you know, public relations companies in Washington, D.C. and in London to sort of um, present uh, an acceptable face of Zimbabwe, those have failed as well because people are observing, they are watching what's happening on the ground and they see the suffering of Zimbabweans, the abuses, the torture and the abductions. The need to get the international community on side um, means that you've got this strange, on the one hand, you've got uh, ZANU-PF and the security forces arresting, torturing, oppressing people. And then you've got this rather strange deal that has just been done for 3.5 billion with the white farmers, which is a um, is one of the key checks that have to be done before any international donor funding for Zimbabwe will be released. But how relevant do you think that this deal is? I mean, here is a, it's $3.5 billion um, that the country does not have and cannot get until it gets donor funding. So it's kind of smoke and mirrors, isn't it? I've been uh, uh, talking to uh, some of the affected uh, farmers and it, it, it seems that it is uh, a half-baked deal which, is, uh, which was hurriedly put together uh, to try and uh, perhaps again do some kind of cosmetic approach uh, to uh, a constitutional commitment uh, to pay uh, compensation for, um, uh, to the white farmers. But it's unlikely to achieve much for the government because you, you are quite right. There is no money. The 3.5 billion US dollars is simply not there. And it seems uh, part of the plan would be to then drop in the commercial farmers uh, and uh, approach the international community, approach the donors uh, for funding. Uh, but again, in this context of serious abuses, uh, of mistrust, of um, massive corruption, uh, I do not see how uh, the government of Zimbabwe would be able to raise uh, that kind of money. Just to underscore this for our listeners, in case they didn't quite catch it at the beginning, Zimbabwe uh, wants to compensate 
mainly white farmers, 3.5 billion US dollars for with money that it doesn't have. So it will have to go to the international community to get that money. But it's the very same international community that is uh, clamping down hard on Zimbabwe because of ongoing human rights abuses. And actually, I think they've just imposed sanctions as well, haven't they, Tara? Yes, they have. On one of the uh, sort of riches, the eminence grise behind, uh, behind ZANU-PF, um, uh, the CEO of Secunda Holdings um, has been, uh, sanctions have been, direct sanctions have been imposed against him. And so despite all the money spent in Washington, I don't think uh, ZANU-PF has got any friends in the room in Washington on either side of the house. Are we expecting more sanctions? That's pretty, that's pretty clear. I mean, the Americans have, have clamped down on Secunda. Can we expect to see more sanctions happening now? It is likely that there will be more uh, beyond Kuda uh, Kwashita Grey and uh, Sakunda Holdings, uh, who was um, uh, placed on sanctions for high-level corruption. But also, I think with the uh, spreading of these abuses that we are witnessing, uh, it is likely that there will be more individuals placed on sanctions for the serious abuses. And also because now there is uh, this um, trending uh, online campaign, uh, Zimbabwean Lives Matter, which is now highlighting the abuses and which has now triggered uh, the intervention from South Africa. President Ramaphosa has dispatched a special envoy of two individuals to Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah but only, only just, they were only just. It's taken a oh, lot yes. of arm twisting oh, yes. to get oh, that yes. far. Do you think that will really make a difference? I mean, there have been questions that have been raised as to South Africa's real commitment to get involved in Zimbabwe and questions about the appointment of these uh, envoys, whether they are really the right people to do the job, given that historically there's been such close uh, kinship between the two countries and an unwillingness to, uh, to, to call Zimbabwe out. Well, it is, a, it is a first step. I think more needs to be done uh, to uh, push uh, not only the envoys, but also to uh, push South Africa to do more. South Africa has uh, spoken out now and has raised concern about the abuses in Zimbabwe. So that's quite a, a departure from its uh, uh, usual quiet diplomacy approach. So it, it's something that should be uh, supported. Of course, um, uh, we are aware of the historical background and some of the concerns and suspicions about whether or not these um, uh, individuals uh, have what it takes to, to press Zimbabwe. But the publicity, and this is a good uh, first step that needs to be followed up on, on by additional steps to, to, to press Zimbabwe. And also, uh, we need to see even within Zimbabwe, the different groups that are there, the trade unions, the churches, uh, civil society groups, uh, citizens groups, uh, speaking out more and engaging with these platforms, engaging with the special envoy uh, to take so the country on forward. on that note, how will Zimbabwe go forward from here? Million dollar question. It, it is. With a million is, dollar prize, you know, first... <laughs> if you get it right. <laughs> My thinking is that uh, what needs to, to happen in Zimbabwe is not what happened in November 2017 which was that uh, uh, within ZANU-PF, they simply removed uh, Robert Mugabe and replaced him with Emerson Mnangagwa. But the system remained intact. The security forces remained in charge. Uh, and therefore, nothing really changed. Uh, it was a palace coup. So now there have been uh, talks about removing Mnangagwa and possibly replacing him with uh, General Chiwenga or someone uh, within ZANU-PF. But that would not be 
enough to bring about sustainable change, lasting change. What needs to happen is that uh, there should be a, a process that leads to deep electoral and legislative reforms uh, towards a credible free and fair election. Uh, and it would actually be wrong to simply say Mnangagwa must go because that was the same mistake that was done in 2017. Dewa, really interesting to talk to you. We are running out of time, but thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Karen and Tara. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Tara, it's interesting. You know, some people say, why do we focus so much on Zimbabwe? Um, you know, if you're covering Africa, why does Zimbabwe matter so much? And I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually investing in a small enterprise in Zimbabwe. She doesn't have any Zimbabwean connection. She was very critical of the country, but she's, you know, trying to see that it turns a corner. She said to me, look, there are other authoritarian regimes around Africa. Why is there so much focus on Zimbabwe all the time? She has a point, doesn't she? She does have a point. Um, But, you know, I think it's because that Zimbabwe is not has not changed at all. I mean, you know, yes, Zimbabwe was actually from an education, as you said, as education, agriculture, mining, all of those perspectives. It was out there in the forefront of Southern Africa 20 years ago. But then so was Zambia at independence in 1964 and Zambia by where I grew up. And Zambia by 1987 was ready to transform itself into a modernised economy. What we haven't seen in Zimbabwe at all is any real fundamental change. We actually have a regression with ZANU-PF. I mean, what's happened recently is we've seen the ZANU-PF actually step back on itself and reimpose economic policies such as the reintroduction of the Zim dollar that has failed spectacularly before. Zimbabwe was a first when it uh, hit hyperinflation. It beat all historical world records in inflation, including the Weimar Republic. So why would you do that again, um, if not for profiteering purposes? So there's no aspect of reform, I think, which is unlike every other liberation uh, country that is a liberation country in, in Southern Africa. Angola's MPLA ruling party is reforming. Frelimo in Mozambique, they're reforming, opening up their economies, transforming society. Zimbabwe has not. Yeah, and I think that's a a very, very strong argument. Tara, always interesting talking to you. Another fascinating Africa-focused conversation. Thank you, Karen. Good to chat. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thanks for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces a daily chronology of events, as well as reports and briefings about the region. You can sign up for these at info at Consulting. that's all one word, dot com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.